Welcome everybody to this Ocean Life Podcast. I'm your host, Josh Peterson. Today's episode is sponsored by our good friends at Mile 22, makers of surf and paddleboard straps, including the world-famous Monster Straps, which I love and use all the time, designed in California by folks who surf and paddle every day. Check them out at mile22.com. Now, today in episode number 64, we speak with Chris Hearn, a man of the ocean from Newfoundland, who's part of this Disasters at Sea television series that re-examines some of the most mysterious and harrowing sea disasters of the last 50 years. Chris takes us through his work on the show, helping to capture the human experience of maritime disasters. We hear about Chris's 15 plus year career at sea, traveling the world and reaching the level of master mariner. Chris talks about a variety of vessels he's operated from icebreakers to cargo ships and drilling and more while sharing his perspective on life at sea, running a ship and living with the raw wild of the ocean. Chris shares an incredible story of being caught in a perfect storm scenario near the Grand Banks and talks about his current role as director of a marine simulation center, helping the maritime industry become more safe. Disasters at Sea is a really well done show that makes you feel part of the actual disaster. So thanks to you all for being here and supporting the podcast. Hope you're getting out in the ocean and doing something fun. Uh, remember to grab some trash, reduce your uh, plastic usage, and uh, I don't know, do something great for each other and the ocean. So with that, let's get into the ocean life of Chris Hearn. Hey Chris, welcome to this Ocean Life podcast today, my man. Thanks a lot, Josh. Happy to be here. Yeah, no, this is rad. I'm, I'm excited. You know, so many people who we speak with on the show, they're like in the water, immersed in it. They're under it. They're surfing, diving. They're on it. But you're like on it, but at a different level, man. You're on big, giant ships, and you've been doing so much for a whole career, a, a whole life on the water uh, in the maritime industry. So excited to have you today and hear your perspective on things. Yeah, and it's it's great to be part of this program. Uh, I've been listening to it now, and I got a, an appreciation for the types of people you have on here and their interesting lives and things they're doing in and around the water and the environment. Uh, and you know, I'm here to kind of give a little different view for people who who are on the water uh, as a lifetime and as what they do. Yeah, awesome, man. Very cool. So to start now. You're working this show called Disasters at Sea, and that's a pretty cool show. I've seen some trailers, a couple episodes. It's really fun. I mean, anybody who likes the ocean, I think everybody's kind of fascinated. It's like watching a car wreck, sort of, like you can't look away. And so seeing these recreations of pretty gnarly disasters and traumatic experiences at sea, if you would, man, give us a, like an overview of the show, um, you know, what it's all about, but then also the role you play in, in production of the show. Okay, I'll start from the beginning, I guess. So uh, Disasters at Sea is very much a high-end docudrama, and it's very interesting because a lot of people uh, don't really know enough about or very much about shipping in general, the international shipping industry and the ships that are moving around the coast. You might see them as a, some sort of an abstract item when you're driving along the coastline or you're there on the beach. But, uh, you know, there's it's a vast, broad industry uh, that supports the world's economy. And when there are accidents that occur, ships sink and and they collide and there's all kinds of bad things happen. People aren't really aware of you know what actually goes on because it happens far away from where everybody is to, typically in yeah. out at sea or you know in a place where nobody's looking. And it's very challenging for anyone to put the pieces together to find mm. out what happened. Quite often the ships sink and there are no survivors, which is a terrible thing. 
Yeah. So you have a loss of life, and you know the investigators have a really challenging time trying to figure out what happened, considering the cost both in life and and to uh, the people who own things that are on board the ship. And so what this series does is, and it's really interesting, is it looks at not only the the investigators uh, trying to piece together what happened. But also from the human side, like it gives a little insight into the people that were on board. It talks to either survivors who who did make it through and were able to to recount their story, but also other individuals who were involved. So uh, that makes it a really compelling series. That not only it looks at and makes people aware of you know the life at sea and what goes on on ships and what happens when they, there's yeah. an accident, but also there's a human element to this that sometimes people overlook. So uh, that that's what's yeah. really got me hooked about the whole thing. Right and, on. And my part, uh, you know, I, I was lucky enough that the, the producers and the team reached out to me to help them in understanding, you know, the jargon and the language and the reports and the, and the investigators' work because, you know, shipping obviously and, and the maritime, uh, maritime vocabulary is a bit different than what most people are used to. Yeah, so yeah. helping to understand the really technical content and mm. what the actual language is saying and the reviews of the accounts and to help them kind of craft a story that reflects what goes on. And, you know, I was lucky enough that they said, well, we'll stick your mug on the old video as well. And, <laughs> you know, you'll get to say a couple of pieces. And I'm there to kind of to really provide, I guess, the viewers with a little bit more of a generality because sometimes they're talking to some of the investigators or some of the uh, the experts who are involved in the investigation who are speaking from a very technical perspective so I'm kind of there to say listen yeah. this is what this actually means you know in layman's terms right right you're like the translator for the rest of us <laughs> a little bit yeah <laughs> that's cool man so so take us through like an episode right uh, um, and when you come into the episode and then from start to finish, the, diff the different points of the production um, or planning of it, execution of it, et cetera, where you are, 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 are part of this, you know, guiding the development of the storyline that they're, they're basically, you know, creating a, a story around. Sure. So uh, what I'll do is probably give you the start off of the series itself with the first one cool. and the very first episode I got involved in when they reached out to me. And the, yeah. and the pr it's the premiere for the series here. And it, it'll be around the loss of the Derbyshire. Uh, and the Derbyshire cool. was a British flagged bulk carrier. And by bulk carrier, I mean it's a ship that carries iron ore or, or um, nickel or cobalt or can carry oil in, in bulk. So think large cargo. And this yeah. ship was enormous, close to a thousand feet. Wow! Uh, Forty-four persons on board, large crew, big ship, uh, on a fairly routine run, and she disappeared in the uh, in the Pacific during wow. a, a typhoon, Typhoon Orchid, which was an, uh, an incredibly intense and fearsome storm, and it really highlighted for a lot of people, uh, you know, the fact that this ship completely disappeared. Yeah, uh, it was a good ship, you know, it was well built, uh, it was part of a class of ships that were, you know, successful, but they did have some issues as it turns out afterward. And and what the what the first episode does is it looks at the investigation that went into the loss of the ship mm. because there was no reports back, uh, you know, they didn't find anything, there was no wreckage found on the surface when the the Japanese Coast Guard went to look for the after uh, you know, the ship was reported missing and there was yeah. just basically an oil slick. So what what, I, what really drew me to the story, apart from the fact of you know the investigation into trying to figure out what happened to such a large ship, is the human story. And this is driven by the families, the families of the Derbyshire's crew, 
um, were never satisfied with the response or the the results from the yeah. official inquiry, and they said, "Listen, right. this is not on. You know, we 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 don't believe that's just simply an act of God or an act of the sea. Yep. We we want to actually do something." And and compelling enough, they they kept at it. It was a, a story of their perseverance, and they pursued an opportunity to actually mount an expedition. Wow! They you know they raised the funds to do it themselves, and and Josh, you have to think about that. The fact that they actually found the wreckage of the ship is a one in a million. It's a yeah. needle in a haystack. It's insane, yeah. It really is, and uh, I, I think that their efforts to do that galvanized the the officials in in the U, in the United Kingdom to mount a larger expedition, and they did so. And you know, they were able to map out the wreckage across the bottom where the ship wow. was lying. Wow. And it, it, the real story really picks up from there because. The just the the carnage and the destruction of the ship itself. I mean, we're talking a very large ship, thou, almost a thousand feet long. Yeah, lying shattered across the bottom, and this, wow. of course, was amazing to everybody who was involved. And it led to a number of theories about what could have happened to the ship. I mean, rogue was it a rogue wave? Yeah. Uh, the the one that was egregious, obviously, to the families is that there was a consideration that that it might have been crew error. Right. Uh, um, that somebody might not have secured something and allowed the ship to flood, and you know she sank. And sure. it's really compelling to see that you know how the story plays out. So uh, I think that the viewers and anybody who is watching this, even if they're laymen and have nothing to do directly with the sea or shipping, yeah. will be fascinated by it. It sounds like it. So then, as you, so your role then in sort of breaking down the story and deciding what it is you guys actually add to however long the show is. 30 minutes, 45 minutes, what then guidance do you provide to the production team around this? So what I help them with, and, and they're very clever people, they've, they've got a great team there that work on this, um, and they reach out to the technical experts, uh, the naval arcs and the marine engineers and, and operational people, surveyors, uh, is that I help, the, I help craft, I guess, the, the narrative from the mm. human perspective, from an operational side. So because I'm a, an ex-mariner, I spent a long time at sea, I was a captain, I worked both nationally and internationally, is that I can provide the viewers with the insights that you know the technical experts are not there to provide i'm there to put a little bit more of a ah. of a human face like i i can tell you a little bit what this might have been like what it's like to actually be on a ship in really heavy seas right. when the ship is moving around or what happens on board a ship if if some alarm goes off or what the experiential point of view is so i i'm kind of there to to bring it back to the viewer to say oh, okay now i understand oh now i know why this was so serious right so that's that's kind of what I help the uh, help the team with. Got it, and that's really cool because I think while it's neat to see and kind of trip out on how a giant boat or even like you know smaller boats, maybe a couple hundred feet, fishing vessels in the Bering Sea or something, can can you know mechanically or or physically have a problem. It's I think what hooks us when I watched a couple of these was the the crew perspective. It's here's the captain reenact reenacting like the actual scene, but then they, you cut to him and he's sitting at a table and it's the real guy and he's basically yeah. replaying back what it was like to be you know in a in a hazard suit in the water looking at the helicopter you know passing it by or whatever and that's the stuff that you're like you like put yourself in his shoes and that's that's really cool like and that must be really fun for you you know to be able to provide that piece for the show. Yeah, it does, and I'm glad to do it because you know it helps. It helps people understand 
what it's all about. I mean, as I said earlier, Josh, when, you know, when ships sink or there's an accident, whether it's a large ship or a small ship, it, it happens so far away from everybody. It's not like, you yeah. know, you see a car accident and the, the, the ambulances arrive and the police arrive and everything is, everything is there in front of you. But when a ship sinks or there's a, something of, of this nature, it's so far away from everything. And from anyone, and you know, abandoning yep. a ship. Um, if you're, you know, if if you manage to get off the ship, and everybody's abandoned in order, and it's just the whole narrative of you know survival at sea. Quite often, sometimes, and yeah. against the greatest of odds, and right. you don't know if anybody's coming or if anybody's heard the mayday, or if you're in a storm, will we survive this night? Uh, you know, clinging to this lifeboat. Uh, so yeah. what I do is I give a little bit of perspective. I've luckily never had to cling to a lifeboat overnight, but <laughs> right, right. I can tell you what it's like to try and scramble to a lifeboat or to try and carry out an, an abandonment or from that perspective. So again, they're really from uh, the, an operational perspective and someone who's, who's spent a large part of his life um, responsible for people and responsible for a ship. Right. right, right. That's cool. I mean, it must be interesting because I'm guessing that They'll come to you and say, hey, Chris, we have this new episode. It's about, you know, um, Boat X. And you may have heard of that wreck. You may have never heard of that wreck. But you get this opportunity to kind of piece back together in your own mind the story. Because I'm guessing, I mean, maybe some of these have, like, maybe stories written about them. And then you guys will, 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 will like, basically work with that. Or I'm guessing you also just, like, hey, here's a report of this wreck. There's no story behind it. There's no, like, book written about it. And then you guys get to kind of go through the report and piece together kind of what happened. For sure, uh, for sure. I mean, it's such a fascinating business. I mean, the the accident investigation teams uh, who look at this type of work, their their efforts alone are worthy of quite often a lot of the story. How they piece together yeah. what actually happened, how they speak to survivors or speak to family members or speak to people who are on similar ships, and and the, the work they have to do, like including you know ROVs that go and check out the ships on the bottom or check yeah. out the wreckage, or they look at design flaws and it's it's amazing and then to be able to tie that to the story of the ship so uh, to get back to your point about uh, you know here here's a story about ship x yeah th this is true a lot of the ships and a lot of the accidents that are through the series are well known the ships themselves uh -huh. are well known and the point about this is that quite often in the shipping industry the result of an accident the investigation makes its way back into legislation that changes uh, changes oh. design, ship design, ship operation for the betterment. I mean, right. it's an unfortunate truth that it's a reactive industry very much so. They, they, we try and everybody tries to be proactive as much as they can to say, okay, we're going to, you know, we're going to design for all kinds of situations. And that's, that's true to a degree, but sometimes things, things show up as a result of an accident. Many, many ship Many ship casualties and, and losses are a result of a number of small things that all coincide, that come together in a chain, that normally one of themselves might not cause the, the accident, but all together, they do. And this is what helps the industry get safer. So some of the ship accidents are well known because they resulted in changes to maritime law and to regulation and to legislation that has you know, probably saved people's lives now that yeah. they're not directly aware of. Right. Yeah. Gotcha. And so it feels like with you being in the industry and as you mentioned, when, when all these accidents actually happen, it's big news. And so I'm guessing that you, the news will trickle to you, whether the ships off of Africa or somewhere else in the world, it's big news. And so you, I'm guessing, just kind of keep your finger 
on the pulse of this stuff in general just by sheer nature of your job and everything. Is that, is that true? That's right. So, you know, the, the facility that I operate, I'm responsible for, we're very much, uh, we very much follow all accident investigations because we were, were either a part of them sometimes in some of the mm-hmm. cases in our facility or the lessons that are learned or the changes that have come about in training or competency assurance and assessment make their way into some of the things that we have to reflect here. So if there's an accident, let's say an offshore support or supply vessel for some reason, a uh, control system where there's a law of station keeping a building and it drifts into an offshore drilling rig, then the accident investigation yeah. that occurs and that points out the factors that, that why this happened and then that ends up back with us. And then yeah. we're the ones who help people prevent that from happening again. So yes, we, we're, we're always trying to keep on top of everything that's going on and we read a lot of the casualty reports and all of the, uh, the industry resources where a lot of this stuff is, is uh, presented and disseminated. Right. Very cool. And so what you're t- referring to, and, and, and correct me if I'm wrong, is the Center for Marine Simulation. Is that correct? Where you are That's and right. you run that. Yeah. Cool. Yeah, so so I was reading on it and it looks very cool, highly technical, I'm guessing. But take us through that. Like what, 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 is, what purpose does you know, marine simulation serve? I guess there's a research and education, sort of a research and development piece too. But day to day, what's this? It's like really, what do you guys do, and what kind of service do you provide? <laughs> it's it's funny because we're actually here because of an accident. Oh wow! Uh, we were actually created. So the the center is an operating unit of the Marine Institute. It, it's a larger uh, larger body, a larger organization that. Uh, it's the largest maritime training and, and research facility in, in Canada. Yeah. And uh, my particular center, the Center for Marine Simulation, was created after an accident that occurred here in Newfoundland in the offshore oil and gas industry, which uh, was a loss of an offshore drilling rig, the Ocean Ranger. Mm. And the entire crew of 84 died. Wow. And the results that came about during the investigation process pointed towards you know, uh, the need to be able to carry out not only training, but risk assessment or operational analysis in as realistic conditions as possible. And this resulted in a major investment on the part of uh, the oil companies and the federal and the provincial government to create this facility where they would advance the state of the art of simulation capability. So what we have are these very powerful, these very large simulators that move like real ships will move. And we can subject people to all kinds of conditions and we can carry out training in really realistic scenarios that, again, the, the idea is that we almost aim to make people make mistakes and, and have them sweat and have them uncomfortable while they're doing things here yeah. uh, because we're trying to reflect the reality of some operations or some scenarios. So a lot of things we do here are very specific training, very short course, um, uh, continued professional development stuff. And the other things we do are projects. So companies will come in and use our facility to say, okay, we want to find out when things really go bad, how bad could they be? What could possibly yeah. happen if we lose something? So that's a lot of what we do. So we're part of this whole continuum of helping people stay safe. Yeah, that's awesome, that's, man. Yeah. yeah, it is. So, but describe like the physical nature of this. So I've seen a few pictures. I'm guessing there's like a virtual piece. And oh, so here, here, let me back up. When you think of like simulation and think of like airplane flying simulation, right? Where you're in this sure. fake cockpit and it's like this virtual screen. It shows the instruments. It shows everything, but it's basically replicating the real thing. Is that what you guys do? Is that part of it? But do you also have like a physical piece where there's like a giant pool or something where there's water and you're trying to simulate different conditions? Like what is all that? 
Yeah, no, that's that's true. So we, in our center specifically, yes, we have all that. We have the big. You're right. Your the analogy is quite right about uh, you know like an aircraft simulator. So, except instead of a cockpit of a plane, it's actually the full mock-up of an entire ship's bridge. Yeah. So they're very large, right. and so that's what our center has, plus all the ancillary equipment, the engine room, everything that's connected to it. So it's almost Got a complete it. replica. But we also have uh, to echo your point or your your comment about the pools yes that's another center that's part of our institution that has all these wave pools and is able to put people in all kinds of interesting you know uh, situations like abandoning a ship and if i can draw a comparison this is one of the things that i found fascinating about the series and the production of it is that the team in disasters at sea as part of what they want to do to make the series and the the episode so compelling they actually created in their studios, you know, the mock-ups of the bridge, and they include immersing people in pools oh, cool. uh, as part of, you know, representing what it's like when somebody has to jump over the side of a, of a ship or a small boat while yeah. they're wearing an immersion suit or if they're floating in a raft and, you know, to show them wet and miserable because they will be wet and miserable in these situations. And yep. I'm amazed at the uh, the level of effort that went into the program to be able to represent this. And I think it's it's a hats off to the to the team. Yeah, so it was impressive to you as a, a I mean, a guy of the ocean, a mariner, looking at what the Smithsonian and this program's doing, you were impressed. Like, they weren't just kind of, you know, sort of half-assing it. They were really trying to get at as, uh, as real with the recreation as possible. So that was a draw for you, as you said. It really was. Um, like I, I was really, I was really struck by the the effort they went into. I mean, uh, they the the mock-up of the bridge that they used, they actually put it on a gimbal system so they could actually move it around. Uh, you know, to show that kind of stuff, and they they included. And you know, parts and pieces that would represent an engine control room, and they you know they. They had the people, like the actors who would be recreating, they would they would redress them. And I think a lot of the footage as well, they shot on ships that they could get access to. So yeah. it's it's really a full meal deal. It's it's a broad representation, as realistically as possible, they can make of the, of each episode. And they, they really do a good job of showing that human side to it. So just beyond, you know, a story of a ship and this is what happened and, you know, it, it was a loss because there was a hole in the side of the ship. Yeah. They actually go into what people may have been experiencing or doing based on, A, the recounting from survivors or, B, an analysis of, of people like me who said this is likely what was going on yeah, yeah. at this situation. Uh. Yeah, no, it's awesome, man. I, I mean, I, I do give the, the team props. You know, it's, it is awesome. And you feel like you're part of it. You really understand it, um, the way they tell the story and then give that human perspective. Now, now, you are, I mean, you have a bunch of different titles, you know, but one of the things that struck me that was, I'll share is Master Mariner, which is a cool sounding title. And when I was talking with the crew about, about making time today to talk with you, it was like, they're like, yeah, you know, Chris, he's a Master Mariner, this and that. And instantly... What popped in my head when I heard Master Mariner was this like grizzled, gray beard, kind of mat, salty, like, you know, leathery face guy of the sea who's been at it for 50 years, you know? And, I, and then I looked you up and you're like this young guy, dressed <laughs> nice. You look like the CEO of a company, you know? And so, and I, you know, just so it's funny that these, these sort of preconceived notions or ideas of, of what a certain career type is. But anyway, with that in mind, 
talk about being a master mariner. Are you yourself to get to a point where you where you're, you advise on the reality of these shows from a perspective means you spend a ton of time at sea as well. And I've seen a bunch of different. You've been on boats, some drilling and seismic surveys, and ice breaking. I mean, cargo so much. So all that in mind, man. How did you get to be a master mariner? Where did that all start for you? Is it a family thing? How you got into the ocean? You know, way 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 back when. Right. So. I like CEO thing. I got to remember that because <laughs> uh, there was a time I probably did look more like the stereotype that you're, uh, especially after a long <laughs> yeah. period at sea. I but bet. anyway, to your to your point, uh, so uh, you know, from a back history, I suppose, or a background, yeah. So uh, the Isle of Newfoundland, where I'm from, is is a very heavily maritime focused uh, culture. Yeah. Um, you know, a long, long exposure and experience to see a lot of people who were either in the fishing industry or went to sea. Um, you grow up with it. It's like, uh, it was, I was thinking the other day when I, I saw another episode, I remember the Jaws movie, remember Quint? Remember yep, the guy, the yep. character? Yeah, well, the shark hunter. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I grew up in a village that had a lot of people who were like that. Right. all the time so yeah. you were kind of surrounded which you know makes me laugh today when i think about it but a lot of people were like that so it was just it was an exposure to it and yes it was in my family there was a history of it there so when i was graduating out of high school uh, that's what i wanted to do i wanted to go to sea i wanted to become a captain i wanted yeah. to do that. and luckily i was i was enrolled or accepted into the marine institute's nautical science program it's a five-year program so went in as a cadet uh and through the five years you know it's a it's a cooperative program so much time in the classroom and then back out to sea and then back and forth through the entirety of the program and then when you uh, graduate you're a you're a third officer and you get to work anywhere. So a lot of us, a lot of my classmates and myself, we worked all over the world. And as we move through the ranks, so after you gather the, the, the requisite amount of sea time at each level, you have to come back and, and start an examination process, which is very aggressive and, and then caps it all off. With, if you were successful at writing all the exams and doing all the very specific training at each level, then you have an entire oral examination process. So you sit wow. before a board and they orally question you on everything and then you know that's from third mate to second mate to chief mate finally to master mariner which and what that means is that you can sail as the captain of any size vessel anywhere in the world wow man uh, um so yeah it's 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 a it's a it's a process and i decided earlier that you know, a lot of people as they're going through this, because you have to live as well. I mean, you're right. a long time away at sea, and then you come home, and, you know, one thing you don't want to start doing is picking up books and start studying them. But I, I decided earlier in my life that I was going to do this as soon as I could. Mm. Um, and that's what drove me, really, Josh, through the whole thing, is that I wanted to get there as fast as I could. And, you know, you you, you don't get to take advantage of a lot of things in life while you're doing that, but uh, right. I think it paid off for me in the longer run. Of course, the other caveat being is that if you all make it all the way through to the position as Master Mariner, if you get that accreditation, get that certificate, it does not necessarily mean you will sail as captain. There are a lot, there are mm. Master Mariners who have never sailed as captain, and that's yeah. not a mark against them at all. Uh, but what it is ultimately is the decision of the company to give you the responsibility. Yeah. 
or a ship, you know, a multi-million dollar ship carrying people, insured for millions, carrying millions of dollars worth of cargo and the responsibility for that. So that's that's a little bit of a different situation. So for me, I was very lucky that the companies I was working with, you know, took faith in me. And I, w I had great uh, mentorship. I sailed with some great captains and some great officers who helped me and, and taught me a lot. And I sailed with people who weren't so great. And, you know, that's good because I learned from them. Uh, what not to do or how, you know, I said, I'm not yeah. gonna be that guy. Right. And, uh, you know, the rest is kind of just went along. I, uh, I got a command very early. I was, I was good at it. I liked it. And I went on from that and sail on different types of ships with different companies. Uh, as you suggest, I was in the offshore oil and gas. I worked in general cargo and in oil tankers and got to see all kinds of different stuff and do different things. It was a great life. I really enjoyed it. Uh, the, the downside, of course, is you're gone for very long periods of time. Right. Um, you know, five to six months at a time. And when you come home, you know, life has moved on. So people have moved away. <laughs> it's right. on and all this kind of stuff. And then you, you're in this little frozen world. Yeah. You got to catch you, up. <laughs> and you got to try and catch up. And you know, some people are not interested in that. And you, so you have to accept that. Um, but what I did do that kind of helps my, for, for this role, uh, what I do here with this program is that I had come ashore uh, with one of the companies as the Marine superintendent. And that's a kind of an interesting role because you're between the fleet and the owners, the managing board of the company. And I'm responsible for, you know, the certification and the competency of the ships and making sure they're all their certificates and all the things, kind of working with the captains to make sure the ships are, are always well operated and well manned yeah. and crewed. And part of that of included, you know, carrying out an investigation if there was an incident mm -hmm. on board the ship. So I got to see a little bit of an insight of, you know, we had an accident on board the ship and then I would have to fly out and I would meet the surveyors and sometimes the authorities who were going to be part of an investigation. Now, luckily, thank God, I was never involved with something like a loss, but yeah. when there was things that came up, then I would fly out. So I, I got yep. a little bit of insight to how that works. So I kind, I kind of say that the whole thing, both the ship and shore side, kind of helped me to work with the people at uh, Disasters at Sea. Yeah, I bet. I mean, you've seen like the full spectrum of actually on, you know, on the ship, in seas, you know, and all, and, and the human perspective of just life at sea. And then from the other side on the shore, kind of on the outside looking in. So then of all the different operations and different types of boats you've ran, you know, and it's, you know, it could be drilling or tugs or cable, laying cable, what have you. Is there like a certain activity or operation that you, I don't know, found more interest in than, than something else? Uh, it's a good question. Uh, it but not easy to answer, yeah. uh, and I and I don't. It's not a cop out on my part. It's just that each each trade, each type of operation has their own unique challenges and operations. The, yeah. the last piece of business I left off at uh, before I came in the center was in fiber optic cable laying. And wow. I had a couple of years there with a really good company that was doing some interesting stuff. And what I liked about those ships is that, uh, well, we got to work in a little bit warmer water than some of the water I was used to working in, much colder. We did a lot of work in the Caribbean. Right. Said it was a lot of really old-fashioned seamanship. There were very large crews on board. Um, and it was good to see some older traditions that you don't normally see on some ships now because the crews are much smaller. Yeah. Uh, um, the, you know, technology has replaced certain things, and I, I enjoyed the, sh the ships were very good. Uh, it was a very good company and good people there, and I, I really got to enjoy my time there. And it was, it just was right before I came into the position I'm in now. But uh, I also enjoyed working on tankers. Uh, it was interesting to, you know, to be responsible and be part of, you know, those types of operations, loading, you know liquid cargo and then 
pumping yeah. off and all that great stuff. But uh, part of it too is uh, I enjoyed my time in the Arctic. Um, oh, it's not a place that everybody gets to see, and yep. you know, to be up so remote. I mean, never mind being in the middle of the ocean. That's one thing, but also being you know in the middle of the ocean or in the ocean up in ice, far away from anywhere else or anybody right. else, um, and you get to see a part of the world that very few people uh, will ever see. Yeah. And, so yeah, again, so it's a roundabout way of me saying I enjoyed everything that I did. Right. I did. Yeah, yeah. Uh, in each operation, as you mentioned, it was extremely variable. You know, different locations, environments, uh, ocean conditions, uh, weather. You know, boats and everything. But stay, stay in the Arctic. So, and I'm curious. So, you know, here you are. You, you go through the schooling. You work your way up in in understanding boats and the mechanics and everything. And, and everything about operating a boat, but then you go to like the Arctic or something, right? And that is, there's an ice factor. There's a different kind of environmental condition that maybe you weren't super familiar with. So I guess my question is, do you have somebody like, do, are you an ice expert also that you know how to navigate, you know, how to actually, when you can bump things or, or, you know, the, how the boat will interact with, you know, ice of different uh, size, thicknesses, what have you, or is there like an expert on those ships who that, that guy is all about like ice and he can kind of, he can kind of guide, you know, the captain or the crew around that. If that that, if that question makes sense. <laughs> no, no, it does. It's totally. It's actually been the focus for a lot of a lot of discussion at the the IMO, the International Maritime Organization. I'm lucky to, and I'm glad to say that there is actually several uh, regulations and laws in place about shipping in ice and how ships operate in ice. Um, yeah. But to your point, um, so I started my career uh, when I was a cadet and then went back to sea after I graduated with companies that were operating in the Arctic. So that's a very, it was very much a learn by experience. I mean, the captains on board the ships were very experienced ice masters. They, they were a long time in ice. They understood ice and, you know, working in the Arctic, they knew it. And uh, a lot of the people who they came from Newfoundland where I'm from, and we, we see both types of ice here. We get glacial ice coming down, which is the icebergs and we get pack ice surrounds right. part of the island for a lot. So we're, ice is accustomed to us. Like we know about it. So, you know, it wasn't unusual to me, but it's when you get a little bit further along in your career, when you're responsible for the ship operating in ice, and you understand, you know, what it can do to you. It can damage your ship. You can get stuck in ice. You can be stuck for days. It could, if you get into really heavy multi-air, which is really old ice about the consistency of concrete, it can punch a hole in the Whoa. side of your ship. So right. you have to be very careful about that. But to your point about uh, knowing or learning about about that for a long time it was very much focused around uh, an experience factor that you sailed on ships where there were experienced officers and captains in ice they knew ice if there was a ship that was uh, passing through an area uh, that hadn't anybody with experience in ice, then they can engage an ice pilot, which is a, an expert who's yeah. used to navigating in ice, and they can be hired and they'll help with the ship to go through. There's a lot of that happens in the Arctic. A lot of former captains from icebreakers, Coast Guard icebreakers, or commercial ships that operate in ice, they 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 can be engaged and hired and and brought on board to help the captain and the crew. That happens with a lot of the expedition cruise ships. Or you know, there's a training element to it too. So that's part of some stuff that we do here we have expertise in that area and we help people prepare for operating in in the arctic yeah yeah that's awesome man so you you i'm i'm guessing you've been pretty much all over the world and and seen a lot of different water so after and and doing a lot of different uh you know running a lot of different operations and different activities so after all of that 
uh, and seeing, I'm guessing, some pretty heavy water, some pretty weird things, some pretty gnarly experiences. Is there a stretch of water or an area of the oceans where you would be most hesitant to go back to, you know, cause you know, cause, cause <laughs> just by sheer nature of whatever it is, the currents, the tides, the, the, the storms that pop up. I mean, is there, is there an area that you would be most hesitant to jump back into? Yeah, <laughs> that's a good question. That's a great <laughs> question. Um, I would say, um, the, when you're approaching the Grand Banks off Newfoundland, so the mid Atlantic, yeah. um, yeah. or the North, the northern part of the mid-Atlantic. I had an experience one time coming across um, near the end of my seagoing days of two of the most intense storms that collided, came together into one giant one. Wow. And we were uh, we were at a better part of almost 20 days. Uh, we just I just was slowed down to a knot, a knot and a half, just doing nothing wow. but keeping my bow into really heavy seas, the big seas, big waves, and no visibility. All we could do was just slow down and just, you know, ride out the storm as long as we could. And it was, it was, you know, that, that has a cumulative fatiguing effect oh, yeah. uh, because nobody really sleeps and the ship is rolling and battering yeah. and there's no end of noise. And at nighttime, it's, it's just as bad or even worse at night because, uh, when we're when you're slowing down to that kind of speed, the ship is just barely at steerage. So yeah. by steerage, I mean it's just you're just barely able to keep the bow in the direction you want, and you're trying to keep it in the direction of the waves. And uh, occasionally, uh, you know, the, the the officers up on the bridge of the mates would lose track of where the waves were coming on, and you'd have some big wave strike oh. the ship and <laughs> roll all over the place. And so, yeah, that that northeastern part of the Atlantic is is bad for weather. And then you get, you know, tense periods of fog, which is what happens off Newfoundland. And, you know, you throw in that factor of glacial ice being in amongst yeah. that. Yeah. yeah. It can be very nasty. Oh, that's heavy, man. I mean, 20 days of just basically, as you said, holding position just to yeah. keep the bow into the into the, the waves with no visibility. I mean, that must have been such a, a morale drainer of the crew, you know? I mean, that's, yeah. but that's part of it, too, right? Everybody that's, that's expects it. that's going to happen sooner or later to them in their career. It is. I mean, you know, if you're going to be at sea, you're going yeah. to experience that at some point, unless you're in very sheltered or coastal waters or especially deep sea or anything that's on outside the coast, off the coast. You're going to, at some point, you, you know, you're very lucky if you don't. I'd be surprised if you don't. But most often, eventually, you will, and you're, you're prepared for it. I mean, so you, you take the precautions, you take the steps, and you're, you're ready for it. No one wants to do it. Um, but that's it. Um, this is, you know, so for, if I was on a ship going from point A to point B and, you know, I'm watching the forecast and I'm getting updates on the weather and I'll adjust my course or I'll slow down and hopefully the weather will pass ahead of me or behind me or I'll yeah. avoid it by altering course. And sometimes that's it. It, you know, it, it just engulfs you or you're just, and all you can do is, is take your time and, you know, let the ship find her way through and, you know, just be careful and vigilant about everything. And that's how that goes. It, it's, it's interesting that you make the point because the the oil and gas operations that are here off the coast of Newfoundland occur in really heavy conditions. And oh, I, often, I often think about the fact that, you know, while I'm just traveling through an area of bad weather, yeah. uh, they're, they're out in it. They stay there. I mean, the supply boats, yeah. they have to hang out and they've had some, they have some pretty rough nights. I got some friends who are on the anchor handlers and the platform supply boats and yeah. uh, off the coast of Newfoundland, it's heavy duty. They, oh, they put in some rough nights. 
<laughs> I can only imagine, man. <laughs> I can only imagine. So take about like, like how about the opposite end of that spectrum, right? So we're talking super heavy, gnarly, you know, um, rough seas. Now, and there's also then plenty of days when it's just epic, right? You're just, yeah. it's, it's buttery, it's glassy, it's just favorable. And you're, so for you, here's what like the question I'm going to ask is you're so busy on the ship. You're doing a thousand things. You're managing the crew. You're just doing so much. Do you get the opportunity when those moments, you know, or those times when it's just awesome out, the water's perfect, like where you can kind of reflect and just enjoy, you know, being at sea and being part of, you know, away from everybody, away from man pretty much and just really enjoying the raw nature of, of and beauty of, of the ocean. Yeah, there is, you know, it's, uh, I often think of how many nights, you know, you're, you're up there on the bridge uh, when you're an officer, just looking out over, you know, really the broad ocean and there's nothing yeah. but you, you think a lot, I'll tell you that, I'd say uh, that's certainly something you, you seem to re- really organize elements of your life a lot because you have so much time to think uh, yeah, that's cool. when you're just steaming along and you know the routine of life on a ship you know settles in during deep sea passages that you know the watches come the watches go people eat they go to sleep they get up they do mm-hmm. whatever work is going on the ship settles into a really you know routine running of the day but to your point uh, yeah there have been times i mean sometimes when you've when you've had a really difficult time alongside, you know, the port call has been really, you've been very busy. A lot of, you know, cargo operations have been difficult and you're just glad to get clear of everything and everybody and get the ship out and get get away from everyone. And you're out on the bridge wing, uh, out on the bridge wing and, you know, there's this warm tropical wind blowing down off the ocean and you're, you get the smell of whatever, you know, flowers or something, I don't know, off the coast of Brazil. And it's just there on the bridge wing and the sunset is, is beautiful and you're on your way somewhere, you know, it's it's just, those are the moments that make it all worthwhile. Or even just, you know, the, the good times on board when, you know, we're the, the cook is going to have a barbecue and everybody's out on the, uh, the after deck somewhere. And, right. you know, that human side of it, we're all together in this. And yep. that's the thing about it that you do miss in the end is that camaraderie that, you know, I may, these, this is the family that I'm with now for a lot of the time. And yeah, that's why, you know, crews gender to be, tend to be very, uh, very tight. Yeah. I bet man spend so much time together at sea and, and enduring, <laughs> yep like in, intense moments you know there might be epic moments you're all hanging out having a nice barbecue and it's yeah. beautiful and then a couple hours later you might be all just batting it down and just getting down to business because things are are a little bit more chaotic you know and yeah i can totally see that so yeah what about like and i this is a, an aspect of like um the ocean that I, I, I love is like the, myth, the mythological side, let's so to speak, right? So I'm looking at a master mayor and all the amazing things you've done and, you know, very much, you know, a lot of schooling and, and training and all kinds of stuff. But there's also this element of the ocean where it's like the myth, the mythology part, you know, it's like the superstition part and everything, you know, an example is like, <laughs> I, I got a boat, buddy of mine went in and we bought a, a Parker, it's like a 24 foot, you know, wheelhouse fishing boat and did it. And have a name on it. So we've got to put a name on it, you know? Okay, cool. So we looked up and I was looking up, how do you name a boat? You know, and one of the funny things that popped out, which I just love that this superstition of the ocean can be crazy. And it's so classic is you never name your boat after your wife, right? You always name it after your daughters because they'll always love you. And you're never sure if yeah. your wife will. And you know, <laughs> so things like that. So you as where you're at in your career and being on the water and seeing so many things, 
where does that superstitious part for you, you know, I mean, is, is there an element of that still for you or was there ever, you know? Always. It's a funny thing. I mean, the culture of the sea and you're, you're reflecting on it really well. I like that. I like how people can, you know, whether they know it or not, are affected by superstitions that come from ships and yeah. the maritime culture kind of, you know, slowly fingers out into uh, into people, whether they know it or not. And, uh, oh, yes, I mean, um, and that's partly coming from Newfoundland, which also has, you know, a, has a really strong culture that's built around the sea. So we're right. really immersed in it here. But, oh, yes, we had all kinds of um, all kinds of uh, traditions and superstitions about stuff. I mean, ships would never sail on Friday formally, right. whether that was actually real or not, I don't know. And right. you're, you're right about the uh, – right about naming a ship. I mean – one of the uh, there's many reasons why I've heard, but one of the things that you know was kind of a common knowledge of, you know, ships are always referred to she because while you're on board, you're only supposed to pay attention to her, and the ship would get the ship would get jealous. The ship would be jealous if uh, if you were talking about you know no women on the ship kind of a thing that right, the ship right. would be jealous of a woman, and you know you, she would be unwieldy or not responsive or right, right. and all kinds of stuff, and never coil ropes against the sun. Yeah, uh, or open a can upside down. Never open a can upside down. Wow, uh, that was all. You know, it was never ending. When I think about some stuff now, and um, you'd never say pig a, a pig at sea because uh, pigs can't swim, and it was figured <laughs> you were you were inducing uh, people to end up in the water and drown. Right, and all. Right. I've heard all kinds of ones. Yeah, so they're still there. I mean, I have a boat myself. I've always had boats, and probably yeah. I had too many boats, and right. I have now. Uh, you know, I I. I I'm always kidding people when they come on board, you know, and they're, we're having a good time and don't be whistling, stop whistling. And why, why can't I whistle? And you're going to whistle up the wind or, you know, Oh yeah. my nephew and my niece look at me. And so I have them half frightened to death all the time when they're, when they're on board, but I do that um, madness as anything else. Yeah. That's classic. So, <laughs> so talk about that. What, what kind of boat do you have and what are you guys out doing on it? So for me, uh, I have a, uh, 36 grand banks. Yep. Awesome. Uh, uh, yeah, it's a great old boat. It really is. Got a lot of soul in it. Uh, yeah, they're great boats. Um, so what I do is uh, usually we I, I keep her in a in a marina. She's up on the land right now, obviously because you can't be boating this time of the year. But normally I I use her for uh, myself and the wife. Uh, we go for long trips around the island. We go up into some of the more isolated bays where there was a lot of resettled communities. Um, after Newfoundland joined Canada in 1949-1950, they they resettle a lot of people off some of the smaller islands. So, out on these islands oh, wow. are people used to live, and they're they're really amazing, interesting places where you can go go with a boat, and you can only get there by boat. And oh, cool. so we go in, and yeah, it is. We go in and we anchor, and sometimes some of the old docks are still there, and we'll tie up, and you're you're in this almost like little ghost town now. Sometimes the people come back. I mean, they keep they go there for the summer. Some people are fishing from there, and you get to spend some time talking to people, learning about their the community and the families were there, and it's good. So the, like the the season is short, uh, for oh. but. It's still really enjoyable. I mean, it's challenging uh, at times because the weather does turn here quite quickly. Yep. So, you know, you kind of kind of keep an eye to it. And, of course, there's always a bit of fishing, too. Right? You know, it's, oh, we're yeah. always used to boats for fishing and things like that. So I do a lot of stuff with it. I try and spend as much time as I can on it. Yeah, nice. Now I'm looking at pictures of 36-foot Grand Banks. They're awesome. 
Awesome boats, man. It looks like you guys would have so much fun just cruising around. And, and so you go for like multiple days or like week? Yep. What, what's your kind of, yeah. Yeah, yeah week, 10 days. Uh, right. You know, that's about as long as we can stand each other, you know, in a yeah. small <laughs> confine. And, uh, so uh, we're tr- always trying to figure out how to take the dog. So we have a dog. He's a blind dog. And, oh, no way. <laughs> yeah, he's, that doesn't stop him, though. Uh, <laughs> anyway, he likes to get on the boat, but then he wants to get off after a little while. So, yeah. no, he's, uh, it's a bit of a challenge but he, he comes on for a day trip so normally we'll just get him on board if i'm taking if the, some of the family are coming with us nieces or nephews or whatever they'll come on board the boat and then we'll go for a run you know he'll he'll curl up on one of the settees and he'll be happy enough and and when he wants to get off though he starts to get anxious and he starts yeah. pacing around he walks around the cabin of the boat so around around <laughs> around i know yeah. that the toenails clicking on the wood. <laughs> that's it. Stop scratching my wood. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Right on, Chris. Um, well, that's cool, man. So this has been a lot of fun. And so disasters at sea, it sounds like you'll just keep serving in the capacity you are. It sounds like you're really stoked on it. And the show is doing great, I know, down here. And it's going to start airing in Canada, I believe, as well. Yeah, it is. So the 16th is the first episode. Yeah, awesome. Uh, 10 Eastern, and then there will be six episodes after that for the first season. And I think people will really enjoy it. It's it's really well done. Yeah. Uh, it's the work of a lot of people. And as I say, the, I can't say enough about the team and the writers and the technical experts. And the, the, the attention to detail is what also drew me to yeah. this, is that how careful they were to represent the stories really accurately. And I, I'm, I'm really impressed by that. And I think people will see that effort in the programs yeah yeah i agree and the one i watched i think it was like a short but it was educational too like not only was i like wow i feel like i'm in in the i'm seeing the story from the perspective of this this sailor who's in the water but you know he's like oh the helicopter just passed me by and then you realize because the coast guard they got to see where everybody's at get the guys further away and so there's an educational aspect too which like as you mentioned the attention to detail is is just really great it is it really is yeah and uh, for folks listening, we'll throw some notes or links in the show notes uh, so you can go to the Smithsonian website, check out. Um, I'll throw in a couple links to Chris so you can dig into him a little bit. But uh, Chris, man, I really appreciate all your time and sharing so much, man. This has been a, a lot of fun. Well, thanks for having me on, Josh. I really appreciate it. It was great chatting with you. Very good. Well, thanks so much. Take care. All right. Cheers, bud. Hey there. Thanks so much for listening to the podcast today. We really appreciate all the support. Uh, if you like what you heard, uh, please, you know, uh, hype us up on social media. Always appreciate, you know, spreading the word. Uh, give us a nice little rating on the uh, your podcast app and uh, just keep tuning in. If you're interested in being on the show and sharing some of your life stories, uh, hit me up, josh at thisoceanlife.tv. You can PM me on uh, Facebook or Instagram. Anyway, thanks again for being here and uh, have a great day.